Welcome to the 36th episode of It Wasn't Me, a true crime podcast where we discuss murders that intrigue us. I'm Mercedes. And I am Cindy. Thank you for listening to last week's episode where Jay Neal massacred five people during the commission of a robbery robbery of the Geronimo Bank. Our show is often horrifying and graphic and we will use offensive language pretty much every chance we get. So if you have kids, put them away for a while and join us for a murder. Also, we're passionate and always have been about true crime, but we must warn you that sometimes we're going to make jokes and laugh during our podcast. Want to learn more about us? Please visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com to find links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. If you like what you hear and you'd like to help us out, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a five-star rating along with a nice little comment. Also, please recommend our podcast to one of your friends or all of your friends. The more the merrier. Hey, Cindy, I'm so glad to see you today. I can see you're really upset. <laughs> Would you like to talk about it? Men are stupid. Men really are. I'm, I just want to point out that as much as we enjoy doing this podcast, and we really want it to be a huge success, that sometimes our fucking husbands <laughs> act like it's just, you know, a hobby and it's not important. And sometimes I just wish that they would chill out and let us have our one day a week to do something that we really believe in. Exactly. So listen, if you believe in us and support us, please give us a rating so that they'll know that we're not just stupid bitches <laughs> playing around every week. Please. Asshole. <laughs> but, but you know what? We love our husbands very much. But yes. sometimes they do. They make this a chore sometimes and try to make us feel guilty. And you know what? I don't fall for it. But I think sometimes Cindy gets dragged down a little bit. <laughs> A little bit. I work a lot already. Yes, you do. You do. You have way too many jobs, <laughs> if you ask me. I like money. Yeah. Well, I like money too. I just like. I just like um, breathing. Usa universe, and it all comes my way. I love it. It works perfectly. You should try it sometime. Yeah. 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 So anyway, Cindy, um, anything else you want to add, or should we just dive right in? Um, I'm trying to think. Did I do anything interesting this week? Have I watched anything? Read anything? Well, we went know. to the keto bakery yesterday. Oh, that we was did. nice. That yeah. was good. And yeah. I swear to Jesus, right now, if someone has eaten my muffins from the keto bakery someone is gonna die well and they were closed when they were closed when we went there the mondays are their production day and but they didn't lock the door so we actually got in so we kind of like cleaned out what little bit they have but oh it's to die for it really is so yeah that was good that, that was good i'm telling you there's gonna be a new episode they're gonna end up on do not say that <laughs> do not say that all right well last week you told us about the geronimo bank robbery that resulted in the massacre of five people right and i that is correct and i and i said you know that i, I would never i just would never have been interested in doing a bank robbery uh-huh. but the interesting thing is that this week's episode includes a bank robbery no really well kind of okay. in a very small way it's not the focus okay, okay. So, mm-hmm. so are you ready i'm ready give it to me all right well we're gonna start on sunday july 25th 1993 in mason city iowa marge milbrath lived 
not too far away from her daughter. And whenever she went to the grocery store or wherever, she would drive by her daughter's house. And on that Sunday, her daughter was standing on the front porch and they waved. So her daughter, 32-year-old Navy veteran Lori Duncan, lived in the house with her daughters, Candy, who was 10, and Amber, who was 6. She also lived with her boyfriend, who had just just recently moved in, which is very odd because they really haven't hadn't been dating very long. They'd only been dating a couple of weeks and mm. kind of insinuated his way in. And and mm. that afternoon, around 4 p.m., Candy, the 10-year-old, was playing behind the house with a neighbor friend. And she announced, oh, I have to go now because my family's leaving to go on a picnic. The next day, Marge drove by her daughter's home again and noticed that the drapes were still closed. And it was just an odd time of day for her drapes to be closed. Her daughter was kind of an early riser. She's like, that's odd. And then she noticed that the vehicles were parked haphazardly. Okay. Which was very odd. You know, it was like somebody quickly had pulled in and didn't even make it in the driveway or whatever, right? right? She was worried, but she's like, "Uh, maybe she, you know, it's not feeling well or whatever. So she continued to her destination. When she drove back by later on, there was no change. She starts freaking out. She finally talks her husband, Dave, into driving over there with her. They had a key to the back door and they go in and they immediately realized something was going on. Uh-oh. She said alarm bells went off instantly when she entered the house because it was messy. The kitchen was a mess. There was an unfinished meal on the dining table. The beds obviously had not been slept in. I'm just curious. How can you tell if a bed has been slept in or not? Maybe it was made. But know. if it's made, maybe they got up that morning and made the bed. So I wasn't I quite know. sure about that. I, I make my bed every morning when I get out of bed. That's the first thing I do. So how would anyone know if I slept in it or not? I don't know. Right. Whatever the case, Marge knew something was wrong because her daughter was a good housekeeper. Marge said, Lori always had things picked up. When she made something, she cleaned up right away. So she would never have left anything in the sink or anything. The counter's not wiped. Her house was never messy. The Millbrest ended up calling the Mason City Police Department and they filed a missing persons report on July 26, 1993. So no one was in the house. There's no blood. There's no evidence of foul play at all, really. As I was... (laughs) Yeah. So there's no evidence of foul play in the home. And it just looked like someone had packed in a hurry. Not a whole lot, but things were missing like a hairbrush and, you know, some toothbrushes and, you know, things like that. Looked like a couple drawers might be open. Police wondered if Lori and her girls had fled with Gary Nicholson. That's her boyfriend. Right. You see, Gary, along with another man, Terry DeGoose, had recently been arrested for dealing meth. They have. Right. So in March 1993, police began investigating Nicholson and executed a search warrant for his residence, which led to the discovery of a large amount of methamphetamine and money. Nicholson agreed to cooperate with law enforcement and told agents that his supplier, Dustin Honkin, had supplied him with several pounds of meth over a period of 10 to 11 months, for which he paid Honkin a total of approximately $100,000. Wow. So lucrative. Because I don't know a whole lot about meth. I'm assuming that. Uh, that's a lot of meth for a hundred thousand dollars um several pounds of meth so yes i mean because wow and and don't forget this is 1993 and this is before that database where you couldn't even go in and buy you could buy as much Sudafed and batteries and stuff like that that you wanted (laughs) i remember i'm a little off note here but so i have three kids and you know back in the 90s and early 2000s you know they tell you when you're pregnant you could only take like the red Sudafed. right well so i never had any problem ever going and buying it or whatever and then all of a sudden i'm pregnant with my middle child and i'm like where the hell is the Sudafed? i couldn't find it anywhere it wasn't literally okay so my water broke in a store and so i was like checking out so i could go to the hospital and i 
see the Sudafed behind this little plexiglass with keys. And I'm like, well, that's where the damn Sudafed is. And I had to ask because I had no, I had no idea. Why do you have the Sudafed right. locked up? And, and that's like when the whole meth thing was like, I guess, really starting to become yes. a, a bigger problem. And the thing is, that Dustin Honkin was one of like, he is credited as being like one of the first mass producers of methamphetamine in the Midwest. Wow. Anyway, on March 21st, 1993, Nicholson, who was wearing a wire, met with Honkin to deliver money from drug sales. During their conversation, which was monitored by police, Honkin and Nicholson discussed past and present and even future deliveries of meth. Now that day, police arrested Honkin and his partner and best friend, Timothy Cutcomp. In Honkin's pocket, officers found a note listing money owed to Honkin by two individuals referred to as G-Man and T-Man. Well, that's original, isn't it? Right. A receipt for the purchase of chemicals was found in Cutcomp's pocket. After Honkin was arrested, his brother Jeff Honkin got a phone call that said, dispose. And so Jeff Honkin disposed of items from Honkin's drug lab that were kept in one of the storage sheds. In April 1993, a a federal grand jury indicted Honkin for conspiracy to distribute methamphetamine. Honkin was released on bond. He informed the court that he intended to plead guilty and a plea hearing was scheduled for July 30th, 1993. Now, was it possible that Nicholson, Duncan, and her girls went on a vacation to get away for a while to avoid any contact with Dustin Hawking? I mean, possibly. It's possible, yes, right? But there wasn't, um, it, that was not known at the time. That The investigators had their doubts. What is known is that Gary Nicholson disappeared and that Dustin Hawking did appear, um, did make his court appearance for the plea hearing. And he brought with him a VHS tape of Gary Nicholson recanting his earlier testimony that implicated Hawking. Well, that's awfully convenient. Right? So he has his VHS tape. Now, Honkin told the court, you know, now you don't have any witnesses against me. So I'm going to plead not guilty. So he took away the plea deal. He said, I'm not pleading. I do want to point out, by the way, that no one took that that VHS tape. Once they viewed it, they gave it back to Honkin. So they weren't able to like analyze it or for distress or anything. They just took him at his word and said, okay, fine. You know, yes, your face. These people are idiots. Right? Like, I don't understand that at all. I mean, like, if I, I think they wouldn't the, even take that as evidence today. They would be like, no, fuck off, dude. Well, I think they would have taken it if this person's missing and there's, a, you know, a tape. His last known conversation with anyone or whatever is on a tape. You would think they would take it. Well, I mean, to use that in a court of law, it has to be entered into evidence. Yeah. And they don't well, typically give evidence back He was to allowed people. to take the VHS tape and no one ever saw it again. No, I imagine mm-hmm. not. Only four months after that, in November, Terry DeGoose, Honkin's other drug dealer was reported missing. Is that T-Man? That's T-Man. Now T-Man's 10-year-old daughter was with him that weekend when he got a call from his ex-girlfriend, Angela Johnson. He was still in love with her, right? Now Angela is not, she goes by Kate or she goes by Angie. So she must be Angela Kate. I don't know. She wanted to meet. She told, she called. She's like, look, let's meet up because we need to talk things out. You know, I, I think I want to get back together with you. He dropped everything he was doing. He had his daughter that weekend. He called his mom and dad. He's like, look, Angie just called. Um, we might be getting back together. Can you watch Ashley for a few minutes, for a little while while we go talk? He promised Ashley that he would be back to pick her up by midnight. And he was always, Ashley said he was always a man of her word. When he said he'd be at her soccer game or he'd pick her up for lunch or whatever, he was always there five minutes early so when he didn't come back by midnight she was very very concerned when he didn't come back by the next day she convinced her grandparents to call the police and report him missing 
All right. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Angie Johnson for a second. Her boyfriend, DeGoose, was a big time, big time, and I'm putting that in quotes, drug dealer for that area. I mean, they were dealing in pounds of meth. So he was known around town as like, that's the guy you go get your shit from, right? But she didn't think he was doing a good enough job. She wanted a piece of the action. So she went behind his back and contacted the main supplier, Uh, Dustin Honkin. She didn't want to deal with a middleman. Right. She didn't want to deal with a middleman. And uh, also she felt that DeGoose wasn't doing a good job. He was using more product than he was selling. So he was, he was, he, she called Honkin and she's like, look, he's using more than he's selling and he's a danger to the enterprise. You know, you're, you're really taking your chance. (laughs) Now you, are you laughing? Because why? Enterprise? Yeah, because it's it's drug enterprise. Well, it's called a continuous, a continuing criminal enterprise, which is a federal offense. It's basically gang shit or mafia. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Racketeering, right? Something uh, like that. Well, racketeering is a little bit different, but it, it they're all under that RICO. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So she told, and I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, please email me and tell me so. <laughs> at podcast at gmail.com. So she told Honkin that he was using more product than he sold and that he was a danger to the enterprise. Honkin did deal with her, of course, pissing off her boyfriend. But what could, what could the guy do? Within months, she was pregnant with Honkin's third child. Now, Frenda Johnson, Wait. yes, Wait. she moved from, she moved from, she moved to the guy with the drugs and money. Okay. The so, big drugs and money. So she, okay. Okay, and so are, is this where they broke up and then we're kind of backtracking a little bit here? Did I miss that part? Yes, or? I'm okay. sorry. I'm okay. kind of like going back and forth from what we know. Okay, All right, so well, she's pregnant with the Honkins guy's kid. Yes. But then she calls, see, I in my mind she already, calls she calls T-Man, hey, baby, yeah. I want to get back together. When exactly. really, she's just party probably in on the conspiracy. Okay. You know, you should have been a detective. That's All right. what my mother says. Uh, <laughs> Um, she, a friend of Johnson's had told, said that Johnson told her that DeGoose had to go because he would become violent when he learned she was pregnant with Honkin's child. She wanted DeGoose totally out of the picture. You think? (laughs) Now there, now there are two missing FBI drug informants and investigators knew that this was most likely not a coincidence. No. Mm -mm. They ramped up their investigation, but there was no crime scene. There were no, there was no blood. There were no bodies. And to make matters worse, there wasn't sufficient evidence for the tracking, trafficking charges. There were no witnesses. So by 1995, all of those federal charges of trafficking were dropped. So he's a free man. Well, and and if the FBI can't prove that there's this conspiracy, it's just a a theory at this point. Right, right. But I bet they don't give up easily. Well, they really don't. And um, Honkin doesn't take, he doesn't take that free ride and just go the straight and narrow. Oh, of course not. Yeah, he he begins another meth lab, right? This one's even more sophisticated than than what he had before. So although that case, yeah. I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, no, but I okay. mean the word "sophisticated" and "meth lab" don't really go together. But you know, I saw <laughs> pictures of this online, and I'm talking it like is. it was sophisticated, That's like crazy. it had PVC pipe going from one vat to the other. It wasn't like oh, you know cooking it on your terms. stove, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, it was like equipment. And what I read heat plates. What are those like? Little, yeah, no, this there was no like this oh, was not wow. small town. This looked like almost like a brewery or like if um, like a still or something. That's what yeah. I was imagining, like a like a whiskey still. Yeah, and um and the picture I saw was it was either in a storage shed or it was in a garage or something, and it was huge. It was huge. Oh, wow. Right. So he went ahead and um, started making meth again, and of course. Um, 
authorities find out, right? So he's arrested in 1996 and there's um, an arrest warrant. Ex there's also a search warrant executed to search his property. They excavate the property, hoping to find the bodies of Nicholson, the Duncans, and DeGoose, but they didn't find anything. However, they have him on production of methamphetamine and trafficking. So a year later, he pleads guilty to production and distribution of meth, where he eventually receives two 27-year prison sentences. Oh, wow. So he's in prison for a while. Yeah. All right. So I think this might be a good, uh, good time to stop and talk about today's sponsor. Hey, everybody. We want to take a moment to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Best Fiends. That's best friends without the R. As you all know, researching murder cases is our passion. But when we need an occasional break from murder and we feel like we need a mental palate cleanser, our go-to refresher is the mobile puzzle game, Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a puzzle game that you can play right on your phone. And it's really cool because you go through all these levels solving challenging puzzles that actually engage your brain. This is a casual game that anyone can play and it's really, really fun. Yes, Mercedes, I just made it to level 90. <laughs> well, okay. Well, I only made it to level 30, but I just started playing the other day. The great thing about it is that it doesn't take up much of your time, but it's great in that it fills up those moments where you wish you had something to do aside from scrolling through social media again and again. And again. <laughs> anyway, I know, right? The other day I was in the car waiting while my husband ran into the store and he is like one of those shoppers that takes forever. But I just decided to play this game and it really made the time go by a lot faster. Oh, and you don't need an internet connection to play. So it's cool for when you're traveling on long, on long car rides or on an airplane. This game is also visually stimulating with its bright colors and ton of cute little characters. Best Fiends updates the game monthly with new levels and events. So it never gets old. It's a great game to engage your brain with fun puzzles. And did I mention you get to collect tons of little cute characters? And they definitely are cute. Best Fiends is a five-star rated mobile puzzle game, and you can find it on the Apple App Store and Google Play, and you can download it for free. Engage your brain with fun puzzles. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Hey, everyone. I wanted to take a minute and tell you about today's sponsor, Girl Means Business. If you dream of starting your own business and being your own boss, or if you have a side hustle that you're wanting to grow, you've got to check out girlmeansbusiness.com. Kendra Swalls, the brainchild behind this brand, is an experienced career coach, entrepreneur, blogger, podcaster, and teacher who can help you take your business to the next level. At girlmeansbusiness.com, you will find everything you need to know to grow your business from free advice on building a client base, practical tips on using social media, an explanation of and advice on search engine optimization and free resources that you can download right now. Listen to the Girl Means Business podcast for pro tips that give you immediate advice on how to turn your passions into profits. Follow your dreams, start your own business, and know that Kendra's got your back. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Kendra's been there, learning and making mistakes along her way. Failures can be your successes. Check out girlmeansbusiness.com today and follow your dreams. Now back to the show. So who was Dustin Hawken? Dustin Lee Hawken was born March 22nd, 1968 to Jim and Marvea Hawken. Dustin was the second born. He had an older brother, Jeff, who was a little a couple years older. I never found out how much older he was, but whatever. His sister was three years younger. The father, Jim, was a major alcoholic and he was a criminal and he was proud of it. He, you know, pretty much taught his kids easier if you're a criminal, whatever. Dustin's mom stated that her ex-husband wasn't there that much for the children when they were young and he definitely was not a good role model. She said that he promised them things and then the plans would always fall through. She divorced him when Dustin was eight and Dustin was a huge comfort to his sister Alyssa during the transition of the divorce. When his mother remarried 
married to a man named Ron Smith, Dustin didn't really fit in with a family, according to Alyssa. In either case, in any case, the Honkin children maintained an unhealthy relationship with their father. When they visited on weekends or summer breaks, their dad was always drunk. And when he was drunk, he badmouthed their mother, calling her a whore and other awful names. He wanted his children to despise her, though I don't think they did. I mean, I didn't get that impression. He treated Dustin and his um, Dustin's older brother, Jeff, like servants, manipulating them to do things that they didn't want to do. For example, in 1986, when Dustin was a teenager, his father threatened to kill himself if Dustin didn't help him rob the first state bank. Holy so here we have shit. our bank robbery, Golly. right? Well, it turns out that Dustin's mom actually worked at the bank and she had the bank key. And according to Alyssa, Dustin's sister, her dad told Dustin, get your mom's bank key, make a copy of it and bring it to me. So Dustin did. And when Alyssa said, why? He, Dustin told her, well, I didn't feel like I had a choice. You know, dad was very powerful, had a very powerful personality. And Dustin kind of like, you know, idolized his dad. So he did whatever his dad said. He didn't want his dad to commit suicide. God. I think what gets me is that you could actually take take a bank key and go get a, a copy made. Yeah, I don't think that, I mean, because I see keys all the time. You know, I knew someone who had like a particular kind of key, kind of like our work keys. Uh-huh. You can't take those and get copies made. That's not true. It's not? No. <laughs> oh, I thought they said that. It does say that. Do not copy. Yeah. Yeah. But now you can make copies of your own keys. So, yeah, that's not true. Oh, like in the little machines. Right. I think the do not copy, like, used to be when you would take it somewhere. Yeah. Because so, that's what you used to have to do. Yeah, yeah. Like here, this during this time, they didn't well, have the little kiosk, a machine like at Walmart or right. whatever to make it your key. So, who knows? But he did event, He did get the key made. And another thing is that surveillance. Like, you know, that somebody could break into the bank and just steal whatever. I'm not sure how much money he got out of, out of the bank heist. But he did rob the bank. He later robbed robbed a second bank in Missouri and he was sentenced in prison to prison. The father was. The father was, yes. And the children would go visit him. Dustin would visit his father often in prison and once the dad got out, they continued their relationship. But according to Jim Honkin's ex-girlfriend, Dustin was very disappointed because his dad was drunk like 98% of the time. Dustin was also a decent student. He excelled in chemistry and math, both oh. in high school. <laughs> and, that. Right? <laughs> breaking, and I actually saw like comparisons of him and breaking bad. Um, he also went for a short time to community college. News accounts that I read called him the chemistry whiz, but I'm not really sure how accurate that is. He did when he was a kid. His goal was to get a degree in chemistry and then go to law school to become a lawyer and then possibly work for a pharmaceutical company, which I find funny because he did end up in the drug business after all, right? He was just an un- undocumented yeah, pharmacist. He was an entrepreneur, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, he did, like I said, attend community college for a short time after graduating high high school before he dropped out. He did, um, he became a father of two boys, one of which was his own biological son and the other was, um, he adopted a, a woman. He got together with a woman who was pregnant when they got together. This is like so sad. I mean, he's obviously a smart dude. Right. And he could have had a, you know, a bright future and could have gone far, but probably because of his dad. Got, I mean, I hate to just totally blame it because you have a mind of your own. You're not always, you know, a product of your environment, but but it's just kind of, it's disappointing. Well, and he probably saw his dad flashing money around and thought, you know, and then when he visited his dad, his dad's probably talking about, oh yeah, you know, I'm a big shot in prison or whatever. And, you know, that's just the path that he wanted to do. He idolized his dad. And he probably had really low self-esteem. I yes. bet that maybe he was he, kind of dorky looking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I bet if he like didn't have that low self-esteem because, okay, so take my kid, for example. Okay. If 
my husband said, you're going to do this, 100% Lucas would be like, yeah, fuck you. I'm not robbing a bank. Right. 100%. Literally say fuck you. I <laughs> <laughs> mean, over him yesterday. Oh, God. But I mean, but he he doesn't, he's not, he doesn't have low self-esteem. Right. But I think that if he had a low self, I could see the differences. Okay. Where that could go. You know, at first I didn't take this guy seriously. All right. In 1992, he and his best friend, Timothy Cutcomp, moved to Tucson because Jeff lived there. You know, I want to get out of Iowa. I want to, I want to start my new life. Let me go to Tucson. We're going to go to Arizona. When he got there, he started working at a Burger King. And then he moved from Burger King. He got a job at a company that makes circuit boards for computers. Okay. At one of those jobs, somebody that he worked with turned him on to marijuana. He said that um, Honkin in an interview later said that when he was in his early 20s, a man he worked with offered him pot. And before long, he got into harder drugs like coke and meth. Now, I don't know if I believe that, but that's what he said. Is he trying to convince us that pot's the gateway drug? Um, I'm not sure if he is or not, but that's what he told this interview, this um, reporter. Whatever. It wasn't long after that that he entertained the idea of making meth himself. So he borrowed $5,000 from his brother and he began experimenting with meth production in his kitchen. He synthesized a generous amount of meth in 1992 and with cut comp, and a select few others, he began his very own criminal enterprise. I mean, I bet the first time he made a couple of thousand dollars, he was like, well, shit, this is the easiest money I've ever exactly. Literally the easiest money I've ever made. Exactly. And they decided that early on that they were going to keep things simple. We're only going to ha- work with two drug dealers. We're going to make it and we're going to drive it there ourselves. And we're only going to distribute it to these two guys and they can do their part. That was their plan. Then, of course, Angela comes in. Angie Johnson comes in. Their business was pretty lucrative. Remember, they produced pounds and pounds of meth. Nicholson himself said that he produced over $100,000 in less than 10 months. All this time, Honkin's moving back and forth between Arizona and Iowa. They're driving across multiple states with the drugs. So when he was arrested in March of 1993 in Mason City, he wasn't terribly worried about the trafficking charges because there was no real evidence against him. There were only a few people who worked with him, Johnson, Cutcomp, Nicholson, and DeGoose. But then when he realized at the grand jury hearing that Gary Nicholson had turned and was testifying against him, him, he became enraged and began plotting his revenge, or so he told fellow inmates while he was serving his drug sentences. So now he's in prison. He's talking about things that happened. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. In the past. A few inmates came forward with stories that Honkin told them. One was Fred Tokars. And Tokars, I believe, was from Georgia. And he um, he was serving time for murdering his wife. Oh, nice. Honkin was talking to him. And Honkin wanted to hide, wanted Tokars to contact the Dixie Mafia so that he could put out a hit on Cut Comp, the best friend that he moved to Arizona with. Right. Because Cut Comp in, um, ended up testifying against Honkin for a much lighter sentence. Cut Comp only got five less than five years, while Honkin got two 27-year prison sentences. Mm. So he's pissed. He wants a dude dead. Have you ever heard of the Dixie Mafia? I have not, but I heard of Fred Tokars, and I kind of looked him up, and um, yeah, it was a big deal, but yeah. what do you know about the Dixie Mafia? I, I mean, I've just watched a couple things on it, and I kind of laugh. I'm like, the Dixie Mafia, but the shit, I mean, it's real. I mean, a bunch of fucking rednecks, like, running around like the Mafia, Uh-oh. but yeah, we should do a podcast on the Dixie Mafia. Okay. Ooh, I'm scared. <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> it's kind of like, it, it, you know, it's like, is this shit for real? But I was watching, like, a documentary, and it was covering, like, different, like, gangs and okay. stuff like that, and 
apparently. Very interesting. Tokars and other prisoners also said that Honkin bragged about killing the witnesses against him. For example, one guy said that Honkin referred to Nicholson as a rat and said that he wasn't concerned about having to kill the kids because they were just baby rats. They all needed to die. Oh my God. Honkin also supposedly stated that people, killing people gave him a high like you've never had. So he was bragging about it. The informants, the prison informants also provided investigators with the clue that Johnson was involved in the murders. So now the informants are saying, oh, by the way, this Angie Johnson helped him out. This was something that they didn't have evidence for before. But what they did discover is that four days, uh, well, that Johnson applied for a permit to buy a handgun. And four days later, she purchased a nine millimeter uh, semi-automatic weapon at a pawn shop in Waterloo, Iowa, which is about an hour from her house. And it was just four days before Nicholson went missing. Armed with Honkin's jailhouse confessions, authorities arrested Johnson on conspiracy and murder charges and put her in the Benton County, Iowa jail, where she met an inmate who was on his way to prison, Robert McNeese. All right, so a couple things here. She's arrested because now they have evidence that she was in on this conspiracy. Mm-hmm. This was a few, this was uh, close to eight to 10 years after he went to prison okay. for the two murder charges. So she's in this Abitton County, Iowa jail, and um, I've never been to jail. Nope, me either. But I would imagine that they would keep the men and women separate, wouldn't you? Yes. So how, I'm, I'm just, you know, maybe this is a very small jailhouse, and well, she gets talking to this man named Robert McNeese. Well, because I. I have watched several of those like 60 days in and like the uh jailbirds they they have they have their ways okay they call them kites and they deliver like notes through the um through the toilets and stuff yeah okay i've mm-hmm. seen that yeah so maybe that's what it is i don't know it, it made it seem like they were actually talking to each other every day well they talk through the toilets like All they right. flush it and like yeah. they can it didn't down. say that they talk through the toilets but yeah. you know what i'm gonna imagine it that way <laughs> i don't know now mcneese was on his way to serving a life sentence in prison for um, for heroin trafficking when Johnson confided in him. She told him that she was connected to multiple homicides and she wanted McNeese to help her find someone to kill her friend who had implicated her in the murders. She was also afraid that Dustin Honkin was looking to eliminate her like he had the others. McNeese befriended her and told her he could find someone who was already serving life to cop to the murders. He's like, you know, what you should do is pay somebody who's already serving a life to admit that they did these murders. People really do that? Well, he said they did. Now, McNeese later admitted that he saw an opportunity to help himself by making believe he could help Johnson find someone else to take fall for her crime. He said, I told her I'd been in prison a long time and I knew a lot of people. I told her she would have to describe how the crimes were committed and what the people were wearing when they were killed and where the bodies were located. So what I'm guessing is he wanted the information so he could make a deal. Yeah, that's what it sounds like to me. Yes, and that's exactly what he was trying to do. But Johnson believed him and she thought the plan would work. So she gave him all the information she even drew a very detailed map of where the where the bodies were buried. She described what the kids were wearing, uh, what the kids looked like. She described what she told him what they did. When police went to recover the bodies, McNeese, McNeese quickly took this information to the police who, seven years after they went missing, were recovered. The bodies were recovered of the five victims. They found Nicholas, I'm sorry, Nicholson, Duncan, and the two girls in one shallow grave. And 
then about three weeks later, they found Deguse in another shallow grave that was about a mile away. Now, when Johnson learned that McNeese had double-crossed her, she attempted suicide, but oh, no deal. Okay, so here's the story that police pieced together through all the testimony and all the witnesses and all the jailhouse informants. During June and July of 1993, Honkin and Johnson began searching for Nicholson. He wasn't at home, like he wasn't going to his normal haunts. He kind of like fallen off the face of the earth. During the evenings when they looked for Nicholson, Johnson would ask her friend Christy Gobots to babysit their daughter. Honkin and Johnson also borrowed her car because they didn't want Nicholson to recognize the car. On July 7th, 1993, Johnson purchased the semi-automatic 9mm assault pistol at a pawn shop. The last time that Johnson asked Gobots to babysit so that she and Honkin looked for Nicholson was July 24th, 1993. That's the evening that Nicholson, Nicholson's girlfriend Lori Duncan and Lori Duncan's two children, Candy and Amber, were supposed to go on a family picnic. Gobots testified that she found the gun hidden on the top shelf of her hall closet months or a year later and freaked out. She called Johnson who came over, retrieved the gun and told her not to worry about it anymore. Just keep your mouth shut. Well, Johnson herself didn't keep her mouth shut. She blabbered about the details to all kinds of people. Right. I'm sorry. If I found some random gun in my house and someone told me to keep my mouth shut, I mean, I would think that I would. Well, not only that, but she knows that this couple has been using her car to go find this particular guy. And now the guy is missing and the yeah. case was dropped. So there are all kinds of red flags on that one. She did testify later, but still, I feel like she could have come forward a lot quicker. Yeah. And I think that sometimes these people, when they know stuff is happening, I'm, I don't know. I, I feel like they should be held accountable, well, too. I agree. And I don't know if she was or not you know it could just be stitches get snitch snitches get stitches kind of thing where she's worried that it'll come back retaliation i don't know i mean i guess i don't know what i would do until i'm in and hopefully won't ever be in a situation like that Uh, i agree i i can't live with myself or stuff like that you know i just like you know even if it was someone in my family committed murder i'm calling somebody i'm calling the police all right so here is um here's what happened when Honkin and Johnson realized where Nicholson was staying. They had learned that he had recently hooked up with a single mom. They devised a plan to get into that house. So Johnson carry a cosmetics demonstration bag and I'm picturing like Avon or Mary Kay goes and knocks on the door. Again, the door-to-door like salesman stuff. Right, right. (laughs) All right, so she knocks on the door and she says, look, I'm supposed to be giving a makeup demonstration like in this neighborhood, but I'm not exactly sure the address. Can I come in and may I use your phone book and your phone? Well, they let her in. And as soon as she crossed the threshold, Honkin pushed in behind her. Now there was testimony that once the door was open, they rushed through. While Johnson and Honkin were in the house, one or both of them videotaped Nicholson making statements that exonerated Honkin. At some point, Johnson went upstairs with Candy and Amber and had them pack up some of their things. This was either to persuade the girls that they were going on a trip or possibly to convince others that Nicholson and the girls left to go on vacation or someplace, right? They probably told, I mean, obviously this is all an assumption, but they probably told the Nicholson guy, okay, you just make this video and we're going to let you go. Right. And we're not going to hurt the girls. They took him out of the room. The mom was, I don't, in some instances I read where she took the two girls and the mom to another room under gunpoint, under gun, uh, what, what, gunpoint? gunpoint. 
At gunpoint. At gunpoint, yeah. That didn't sound right for a second. <laughs> These are evil people. I mean, I don't understand anyone who can uh, kill anyone, but let alone killing a child. Exactly. And that's why, you know, at first I kind of thought he was just, you know, a stupid, dumbass thug. But he's he's evil. He yes. is evil. And apparently she was too. Like a lot of people said that they feel like she put pressure on him to do things. Some of these things. Mm. Now, after, after getting the video, they beat and tortured Nicholson. So Honka made him pay for turning uh, evidence against him. Then they uh, tied up the adults with materials that they most likely brought with them. And these were still on like ropes and wires and things like that were still on the bodies when they, when they dug them out of the grave. They then drove them to a wooded area where Honkin took the two adults out of the car, shot them in the head, put them in the grave while Johnson waited in the car with the children. Then the children were taken out of the car and shot as well. All four were put in the same single grave that had been dug earlier. So it was premeditated all the way around. God, I just, it's just fucking evil. It I is. Mean, it, it is. And then to call them rats and they deserved it. It's just heartbreaking. And he had his own kids. Supposedly he was a really good father. That's frightening. Yeah. Alright, so what about Terry DeGoose? Well, with Nicholson missing, the government's attention turned to him. On October 27th, 1993, several individuals were subpoenaed, including Johnson and DeGoose's friend Aaron Ryerson. Now, Ryerson was questioned about possible connections between Honkin and DeGoose. And then once he got out of there, he called DeGoose like, dude, I just got all kinds of, I got questioned by the FBI. Well, then DeGoose called Johnson and said, listen, Ryerson just said the FBI is asking questions. You know, what What do you want me to do? All right. So this is, uh, this is right around the time that she called on November 5th and said, let's meet. I want to get back together. Okay. So this is when he dropped his daughter off at his parents' house, told them he was going to meet her. He was, he kind of had a suspicion that maybe they had something to do with Nicholson's arrest, but mm-hmm. he really loved Johnson. He wanted to give her the shadow of the doubt. However, he made sure his parents knew who he was meeting. Oh, well, good. All right. The evidence indicates that DeGuth was either shot by Honkin first and then beaten with a baseball bat or beaten first and then shot. He had several fractures in his skull. Ugh. Following his disappearance, Johnson gave conflicting reports to police because she first said, oh, I've never seen him. But then it's like, well, you know, people have, you know, he told people he was going to see you that right. night. Yeah. And then she said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. He did stop by for a minute, but then he left after that. He left quickly after that. In July and August 2001, Honkin and Johnson were handed federal indictments for murder. The federal murder charges qualified them for the death penalty, so both pled innocent. Now, I'm simplifying the trial greatly because essentially they are both found guilty. Honkin in 2004 was convicted of 17 charges related to the five murders and in 2005 a federal jury after deliberating for seven hours found Johnson guilty of five counts of conspiracy to commit murder as part of a drug enterprise. During the penalty phase of Johnson's trial the government was allowed six victim impact statements and one of them was extremely powerful. She actually used it as one of her points for appeal because she said it was um, it caused a judge to cry. It was one of the girl's classmates one of amber's classmates wrote a poem and read it at in the court during the penalty phase this is the poem she was only six when she left on a picnic then the theft she never would be able to get to the age of seven for she was shot sent to heaven i never got to say goodbye the nights i was scared those nights i'd cry wishing to see her face again wishing that it would have never been for my dear friend i loved her so i never wanted her to go only five and not aware what would be ahead oh what a scare amber isn't just a color she was my best friend oh my 
my word. That right. just gave me chills. I know. And even the judge, like, even the judge wiped his eyes afterwards. So Johnson's attorney contended that, you know, a judge should be impartial and show no emotion. But right. at that He's point. He's still human. It was, it was, that was exactly. And that, the, the Supreme Court said, no, that's not, he, she had already been convicted. Right. That had no bearing. Right. It had no bearing on her, uh, it, on a sentencing, yes. But um, there were other aggravating factors, which, you know, I'm not going to go into, even though I could, but it would make this way longer. Now, both are, both are given death sentences for the murders of the children and life without parole for the murders of the adults. However, through appeals, Johnson later was resentenced to life in prison for all counts. So the death penalty went off the board for her. Not for Honkin, though. He's actually soon marked for death. Now, what is today? Today is June 23rd. Mm-hmm. He's supposed to... Um, He's supposed to die on July 15th or 17th, which is only a few weeks from from right. today, we'll right? Have to yeah. Keep, we'll have to look, you know. I don't know if I want to, you know, I don't know how I feel about the death penalty. Um, I don't want to glorify it, but yeah, I don't I don't really care what happens to this piece of shit, honestly. Yeah, he killed kids, yeah. so, you know. And and it was proven that he did it. It's not like there could be any chance that he didn't. Mm-hmm. He was the first Iowan to be sentenced to death since 1963. Wow. In 2005, when he was 37, he gave an interview to a reporter. He told the reporter that he regrets ever he regrets ever getting into drugs, and he said he feels bad for his children. He said drugs have not done anybody good. You will get caught eventually. When he talked about McNeese, the jailhouse informant who helped authorities find the bodies of the five people, Honkins' voice got louder. He became very agitated. He called the informant a weasel who only cares about himself. He's a piece of shit coward. Um, that did it for his own personal gain. Um, hello, Kettle, meet the pot. Right, exactly. <laughs> now, the reporter also asked Honkin if he was involved in the murders, and he denied involvement, but he said, I know who did it. During the interview, Honkin's hands were tightly handcuffed to a chain around his stomach, and he had a stun belt around there, and his legs were shackled as well. A stun belt? A stun belt, just in case he needed a little jolting, like if he tried mm-hmm. to run or, oh, yeah. Yeah, motherfucker, yeah, yeah. yeah. that, right? <laughs> when asked, Honkin, when asked, Honkin said that he was not worried about the death penalty. He said, it doesn't even phase me. He clarified further by stating that he wasn't some kind of brave dude. He just knows it will be years before he's actually executed. And I'm saying this today, he's going to be executed in about two weeks. Now, at that time, he said he didn't put much trust in his appeals to save his life. And he was right. He has been in pr- he had been in prison at that time for 10 years when he was actually charged with the murders. Honkin said he feels bad about not seeing or spending time with his children, but he doesn't want them seeing him sitting in shackles in prison. He also told the reported that he and Johnson don't see the eye to eye on a lot of things and they are now at extreme odds. So he's probably fucking really mad at her for drawing a detailed map and whatnot. Oh, because I imagine without so. that, there would have been no proof, right? Wow. So yeah, he actually did try to find um, someone to kill her. Several, that's what's going to be yeah. my next quote or yeah. statement mm-hmm. was like no. Several inmate witnesses testified that, um, testify that Honkin, who they called the Iceman, tried to engineer escapes. He also try to orchestrate the murders of Johnson, cut comp his best friend. He tried to um, pay someone to murder him for testifying against him. But according to Honkin, things are different now. He said that his wild inmate days are behind him. So he's like 54 or something now. I guess he's mellowed in his old age. Yeah, exactly. He says in the years he spent behind bars, he's he reads a lot. He played chess. He studies. He said that he's grown up while in prison and now he just wants peace. He doesn't want to be fucked with. He wrote in his prison journal, I can say with utter sincerity 
identity of a broken and humbled man that I deeply regret every single transgression I've ever done in my life, no matter how small. When those people finally get around to killing me, they'll realize only the shell of me remains. The heart of me died a long time ago. And this is kind of an accurate description of even just addicts, like mm-hmm. drug addicts. Like they lose themselves. They lose their heart. They lose their soul. They easily resort to criminal activity, even murdering their loved ones, people that they call friends in order to keep their beloved drugs. So I think it's a fitting, uh, fitting description for him that his, his soul, his heart's gone. Yes. Well, that's like, you know, what, episode two that we did of the show and tail murders. Uh-huh. And we talked about how the owner of show and tail actually was killed by a friend of his right. who was a drug addict. Yeah, you right. know, and he finally cut him off and said, look, dude, I can't give you any more money because you have a problem and you need to get help. And then he ultimately killed his right. friend yeah. for money and drugs. And it, it's just sad. I mean, please stay away from meth, people. It's it it's the devil. It does. Now, there are two more things I want to add before we end the show. First, have you ever heard of Jody Husentruitt? I have not. Okay, so she is a, she's a news reporter from Mason City, Iowa, who went missing in the early 1990s. And I, uh, her. That sounds a little familiar. Yeah, you've probably seen documentaries on her because they, they come out, uh, you know, at least once a year I see it. Right. She is a cute little perky blonde who was like a news anchor. She was a morning anchor on a new, a a local news, whatever I'm trying to say, station there, right? Well, she went missing and some people speculate that she might have like learned a little bit about Honkin's business and maybe did some snooping around and maybe that's how she disappeared. Are people just saying that or is there there like there's absolutely no evidence to substantiate it except for, you know, Hawkin was doing business in Mason City. Yes. That time period. Like even some of her family friends said that she never would have done that. She was more like the pretty face at the desk. She didn't go out and do investigative um, reporting. Right. Right. So that's one thing that I came across. Hmm, Interesting. Secondly, if you're interested in learning more, I was unable to watch this, but um, he, Dustin Hawkin, Honkin was featured in season three, episode two of Gangsters, America's Most Evil. I was unable to access the documentary, but, you know, it's out there for any of you that want to learn more about this thug. Except for the French version right the french version yeah so if you're if you're fluent in french there is a french version that you can find easily i'm not a french speaker so, so that's it for my wow. murder this week um that's crazy i mean it's just so sad and just to see somebody with so much potential absolutely yes just go downhill right. and turn into such an evil person but meth does that you know if he was using meth then well money is the root of all evil i mean you know, well i don't believe that but you, well, you yeah, but I mean, they make they make some people right. do really e- money makes people do really evil things. Some well, people, I think pe- some people do evil things for money. But well, I don't, okay, uh, we'll say yeah. that some okay. people do yeah. evil things for money. Right, but um, it's just such a smart guy could have done absolutely good with his life yep. he and still done well. Exactly. You know? Exactly. All right. Well, thanks so much, everybody, for listening to this week's murder. We appreciate sharing our passion with you, and we thank you for your support. If you'd like to support us even further, please consider subscribing to our podcast and giving us a five-star rating along with a comment. Your subscription and ratings are essential to our success. You can do this on your favorite platform. For more information and links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com. We are so grateful to spend our time together and share our murderous stories. Thank you so much for your support. Please recommend It Wasn't Me, a true crime podcast to your fun-loving friends. Also, thank you to our Patreon supporters. You are the extra. You too can become one of our beloved patrons by signing up at patreon.com forward slash it wasn't me pod. Thanks again, guys. And remember, it wasn't wasn't me. me.